0: Welcome everyone to the season 2 premiere of the Caribbean Science Fiction Network. A celebration of all things fantasy, folklore, speculative fiction, and of course, science fiction. Today I have with me a very special guest, Nalo Hopkinson from Jamaica.
1: This is just the kernel of the story, and there's so many questions that pop up from it. But I am looking at survivance. The fact that we will find a way to keep going and ways in which we can do so that are uniquely Caribbean.
0: We'll be talking about her latest novella, Broad Dutty Water, A Sunken Story.
1: It's partly the, the view of survival, but that it is possible without destroying things further and perhaps maybe even to contribute to the environment. It's almost like Caribbeanists will find a way.
0: So Nalo, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Very glad to be here.
0: So can I call you Nalo, or do I have to call you Grandmaster Nalo?
1: Well, if you're going to do the rap, then maybe Grandmaster. But Nalo will do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so for all listeners um, who may not know, Nalo Hopkinson was recently named the 37th Damon Knight Grandmaster by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America Association. So, I think it's very deserved. I think what you've done for Caribbean SF is has been tremendous and is tremendous. So, I think it's. I think it's a worthy title.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It made me happy.
0: <laughs> and I'm happy because to have you on the podcast, it's only natural, right? I mean, you think of Caribbean science fiction or Caribbean SF and the name Nalo Hopkinson has to come up. So it's only natural. The first thing, we're going to talk about Broad Dirty Water, but given all that you've written already, beginning with Our Brown Girl, which was published 1998. I was eight years then. Um much older now. <laughs> but um, how has your writing changed, if at all? How has your perspective changed as a Caribbean specific writer from Brown Girl to Broad Nutty Water?
1: I guess I hope some things have gotten better with with practice, like my ability to handle point of view, which is a craft question more than anything else. I think I've gotten bolder, like I'm less timid about depicting Caribbean life and depicting things like Caribbean queer life, and I'm less worried about what my relatives are going to think. So there's that. Mm. I have expanded my reach a little bit. So from science fiction and fantasy, I am also now writing comics, and that has changed my whole view of plot, because you sort of have to to plot a comic because you then hand the script to an artist and if you do it for a conventional publishing house they want to know like months in advance what they're going to be promoting and I don't plot right? <laughs> I kind of like to write and have it happen and then figure it out and rewrite. And so I've had to get a little bit better at plot, kicking and screaming. And when it comes to my approach to language, I do a fair bit of writing in sort of Anglo-Caribbean vernacular, more Trinidad than anything else, but little bits of Jamaican and Guyanese thrown in there because those are all places I live. Every few years I have to reset because I live in a foreign. Every few years I have to give myself permission all over again to write in this speech that is my natural language. So those are the things that have changed, I think
0: i must at least talk about midnight rubber i mean that has been a formative novel for me midnight rubber for me is like a gift that keeps on giving you open it and there's just an, an appreciation for everything that goes on so does anything new come up for you have you met anyone and they bring up midnight rubber and you're like ugh. Again? Or oh, how what is it? Like to you? <laughs> what is it like to you?
1: I never think that because <laughs> each each novel is is like a piece of my life. So every one of them was hard to write and they continue to be hard to write. That has not gotten any easier. So for somebody to appreciate it like you're telling me and for them to say that that it has meant something to them is a gift. It's a gift you're giving to me. So I, I, <laughs> I thank you for that. So I never say "Lord, this again, but what does happen is I published that in when two thousand? 21 almost 22 years ago I forget things that are in it <laughs> and, and people bring stuff up and I'm like who what character <laughs> and I think people are always surprised because to them if it's a book that meant something to them or they've just read it it's very present yeah and for me it is part of a memory yeah. so that's always um, a, a little bit embarrassing but it is what it is <laughs>
0: Well we shouldn't have this problem today because we're talking about a much more recent Brand new novella, Broad Dutty Water, Sunken Story. So talk to us about the story. What's going on for those who haven't read it as yet?
1: Ha. Now, a synopsis is very, very difficult for me to do. I, I have to do them in order to sell books and stories. And I hand a synopsis to my agent and he'll say, well, it's kind of a Nalo synopsis, but I'll do what I can because I'm in it. Right. So I don't really see it as a thing. However, my main characters are uh, a young woman named Jackie and uh, a pig who has been uh, he's had machinery inserted into his brain brain so that he can speak in human language when he feels like. Mostly he doesn't feel like. And the two of them, this is a, we know that the ocean levels are rising. We know that we're going to lose significant parts of the world very, very, very soon. So as an island person, this is very much on my mind. Um, And in my story, we've lost pretty much Florida and chunks of the Caribbean. And there are communities that have taken to the water and live on the water in um, created uh, homes that sort of float on the water and they do vertical farming. They have long trailing things where they can farm various kinds of shellfish, and they trade. So my characters live on one of these, a TAS, a a temporary autonomous zone called Jamdown. And she has gone to the mainland to get some wetware put into her head. She's coming back. She takes a pig with her because they're friends. She's coming back uh, in a small aircraft, and they have to crash land. There's not very much land left, but they have to crash land. Uh, She has left the surgery a little bit too early, so she's starting to have, she hasn't healed properly from it. She's starting to have interactions and, and hear things and see things that may or may not be there. So she has to um, leave this aircraft quite precipitously and take the pig with her. Loses him on the journey to the island and she's injured uh, and it's about how she not just, she's dealing with a lot of trauma because she's lost her own family earlier in, in the rising mm-hmm. waters. She's now lost this this pig that was in her care and much of the world is in trauma from what's happening. So she has to figure out not only what 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 to do to survive, but what she's going to do next. So without too many spoilers, that's kind of what's happening.
0: given what you set out to do, was there anything that you struggled with in terms of, I mean, you mentioned language, you mentioned the environmental disaster, but was there anything you can recall struggling with in this story?
1: Yeah, for true. Science fiction, fantasy require a lot of research. And I'm a science fiction writer who failed science, except for biology. <laughs> all, through, all through high school, I made it through first year bio and <laughs> university, and then I was done because they put chemistry in there and I was just lost. So I have, there's a lot of science in this. There's a lot of climate change science, there's a lot of um, the science of the, the wetware that the pig wears uh, and the, the wetware that I have implanted into to Jackie's brain. Um, so all of that required not just research but me asking people who could translate things into lay terms. Um, and one of the people I, I have been talking to about ocean levels rising and climate change maybe mm-hmm. not specifically for this story but he's never far from my mind is um, Dr. Thomas Guerra who is a pioneer, a Jamaican pioneer of a very simple technology Technology that helps rebuild coral reefs in a matter of months oh. and who has never been able to get the Jamaican government to take this on board. So he's working in places like the South Pacific, helping to sort of to keep coral reefs from dying out completely. And he talked to me once about how much the ocean levels are going to rise. And he says, it's not, we're thinking of it as incremental. In fact, it's exponential. So it's not one by one by one, it's two by two by two By four, by six, by eight, right? So I had to deal with that. I had to deal with um, how to understand the science I was working with and how to translate it. I had to find out things about... uh, This is going to require a spoiler.
0: Dance around it. (laughs) Uh,
1: Okay, so let's just see the science. Yeah. So that was tough. And because... I knew my character more or less, but I had these things I want to talk about. I want to hint at as to why the Caribbean in particular ends up in this kind of dilemma. And I wanted to sort of hark back to Columbus and how to do that in a way that felt like it could be part of the story. Mm. So those things were difficult, but they always are. I always have to get uh, somebody's advice when it comes particularly to the science of things.
0: You mentioned the pig who's called like, Chop, right, in this story. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. What is the significance of Lake Chop to this story, given what you've already mentioned about language and maybe aspects of choosing to speak Mm -hmm. to the overall story?
1: Well, the first thing where the the idea of a a pig at sea comes from is Bermuda, Ah. when, you know, there were a bunch of probably European people landed there. They had brought pigs with them. And there was at that point nothing else in Bermuda except, I think, wild onions. I don't think even the Taino people were there. So they were using it as a stop to to get fresh water and um, hang out for a bit. And the pigs went native. So now there is a wild population of pigs off one of the shores of Bermuda. They live on the seashore and they swim because pigs are actually built for swimming. They are semi-aquatic creatures. And they have developed this culture Mm. where tourists will come in to see the pigs and the pigs will see the boats and swim out to them. And they hold their little snouts up like snorkels. (laughs) It is the strangest thing to see a pig come swimming up to the boat. So that's why he ends up there. But a pig is a very intelligent creature, so I wanted him to be himself. He has his own opinions about things. He might not tell you what they are because he don't have to talk to you if you don't want to (laughs) he has his own tricks and things that nobody else knows about that maybe he even doesn't know about so there's this idea of I think people sometimes think of of fiction as as something that has to be open to you that you have to be able to sort of dig into it and and it lays itself bare and you discover everything about it and I'm kind of contrary I don't think that's necessarily true so Lick Chop is like that you don't really know what's going on in his head it's clear something is but (laughs) would it even translate into the way a human mind could understand things I don't know and I don't care. I do know that he likes Sean Paul. <laughs> so he will try to sing along to Sean Paul, only he's doing so in his own piggish way of vocalizing. He's not trying to sound like a human being. So I am quite fond of him and this uh, this headgear that he's wearing. He was found uh, stranded in some garbage floating on the ocean, so nobody knows where he's come from. He's an enigma. He might not know himself. They don't know what exactly the technology that is attached to his brain can do. They discover a little bit more about about it as the story goes on. But it is still a mystery. I don't solve it, I don't explain it because there's no way of knowing. And I I kind of like that.
0: Just thinking about Midnight Rubber, Chichiba told you what was on his mind. Yes. Um I wasn't afraid, but but I, I like this. I like the, the distance as you explained and the and the independence. Yeah. I want to get a sense from you. How would you describe your your vision of the future as a science fiction writer in general, but in particular in broad dirty water? Because we have like various advancements in technology in this story, and there's also extreme disasters. I mean, you mentioned Florida being submerged and then parts of the Caribbean as well. So does this come up for you thinking about How you see the future playing out from Broad, dotty Water or in general?
1: Mm. I don't write to be prophetic. I think a lot of people think that's what science fiction does. And surely that's what some of the writers are doing. Many of us are not. We are doing a version of trying to imagine something else because we need it. We need to, Hmm. in order to move forward, we need the world to be different. And for me, looking around, we have everything we need right now to make the world a better and a fairer place. We have enough that nobody should be going hungry. We have enough that nobody should be uh, homeless. So I try to, in some of my stories, put those things into play, not just in visions of the future, but visions of the past. Um, My my next novel coming out is, is set in an alternate past in the Caribbean. Uh, in a community there where they have come together in a way that that they are actually thriving without uh, the current capitalist system that's around us. Um, So if I had my druthers, (laughs) I would say get rid of money we need another way of exchanging. We could literally solve poverty and hunger in a matter of weeks if we had the will. If any of that is in broad Dutty Water, it's perhaps in the, the, the floating communities. But they also have their problems because um, they have the, the, the cops after them all the time. Huh? Um, legally, that should not be so. But that is what happens. Um, and they have to interface with the real world. So they have to trade. They are picking up some of the garbage that we drop down and and they are recycling it and breaking it down into its composite parts and selling it. I think, if anything, I believe in the ingenuity of human beings. Caribbean innovation is uh, we're one of the most. Well, no, that's not true. We're we're as as innovative as anybody else, which is plenty. (laughs) And we have. Ways in which we form communities that that I think um, have stuff about them that can be both functional and dysfunctional, uh, so I try to imagine some of those things and I'm writing fiction, so there has to be problems. If I was just going to imagine a utopia, there would be no plot, there'd be no narrative and mm-hmm. problems exist even if the world were perfect, we are human beings, and we are not. so I try to not you know Pollyanna my way into a story. Um, I want it to be as vibrant and messy and the way that humanity is that is a miracle we're still on this planet (laughs) but somehow we haven't blown the whole thing up yet and somehow occasionally good comes out of it and that is my um, touchstone is the fact that we are capable both of such evil but also of so much good.
0: So can we talk about the Taz communities because you mentioned it earlier but they seem to be doing relatively well notwithstanding the environment basically crumbling around them but um, what was your inspiration for the Taz communities and what, what can we learn from them if anything?
1: Well a lot of what they do is um, they are using seaweed which is still plentiful in the future I have I have created mm. to um, create a kind of organic plastic that can be returned to the water. It doesn't automatically make trash that is now the kind of microplastics that's now in our bodies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do that. It can be you know broken back down into its component parts, but their floating communities are made of this stuff. A lot of what they do is using 3D printers. Mm. So the, the craft that Jackie is flying in, uh, her uncle Silvis printed on a 3D printer in component parts and put it together. Yeah. And um they are using if we don't manage to kill the oceans completely <laughs> the oceans can save us and it is fairly easy. So a lot of what I've been doing as I do the research for how we might survive in times when the water levels have you know swallowed up whole nations um is about how I learned about vertical farming for instance about attaching they call them socks but they are they are well think of stockings that that things like mussels and oysters can grow on. Um, and then, of course, you have the problem with what we're doing to the water now will actually destroy the shells of mussels and oysters. So, <laughs> uh, and the, t- the temperature will make it impossible for them to thrive. So my communities, they try and keep the little tiny local environment of the water cold enough for these things to live. And so you, you piece it together bit by bit. I watch a lot of TED Talks. <laughs> I, I read a lot about climate change and climate fiction. And because this thing is, it, it's starting to obsess me in a way. It's probably the third or fourth story I've written about the the ocean levels rising. And I was talking to Barbadian science fiction writer, Karen Lord, and she said, yeah, I'm a Caribbean person. This thing is foremost in my mind. <laughs> so it's very much there. And I, I, I hope It doesn't get to the point where we're on tiny little arcs trying to survive on the water as we are acidifying it and and heating it up to where it can't survive. One of the things I asked Dr. Gero about, I said Gera, but it's Gero. He's so passionate about his work. He sounds so joyful when he talks about it. And he's talking about things that if you take them to the extremes, and that's going to happen very soon, we're doomed. So I asked him how he could still sound so passionate and so joyful. And he said, well, there's still time. We can still fix it. And humanity has done that before. I mean... I don't know about you growing up for me in my early late teens early 20s we knew we were going to blow the whole earth up in nuclear war we knew it and now that threat is much less now we're living in a time where we can destroy each other from pandemic i don't know where that one is going but the fact is we have pulled it out of the out of the 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 trajectory the downward trajectory every so often so i i think hope is where i exist
0: Do you see part of that hope located in a sort of, I want to say a blurred boundary separating the artificial and organic because it comes up in this story, particularly thinking about Lick Chop as a, you refer to Lick Chop as a neurolinked mm-hmm. creature. Yeah. So how do you see that blurring of the artificial and the organic as part of the vision of hope? But what can we take away from this, mm-hmm. well, that boundary, that blue boundary?
1: That, that blurring is um the genie's already out to the bottle, right? We could say, oh, stop doing that, but we're not going to. It's like, once we figured out how to do a thing, we're going to do it more. That's what human beings do. And the fact is, we have been cyborgs for a very long time. Uh, You think of spectacles, you would not believe how many centuries ago those got invented, and in how many countries they were spontaneously invented. When I say to people, you know, if you think about it, a pair of glasses is a disability aid, and they kind of blink and go, wait, oh, I guess so. But we've normalized it, right? So I think there's more and more of that coming. And I look at uh, I think they recently came up with organic computers that can self-replicate. And anybody who reads science fiction is going, oh, oh, oh that's not going to end well.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we are half joking and half not. Yeah. We have always created tools. And this is just another way of creating tools as we try to make work easier. So I don't I don't feel that it's, it's necessarily a good or a bad thing. I think it is a very human thing to do.
0: i think we should talk about language because it it comes up in this story but you 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 mentioned it very early on as part of how how your writing has sort of evolved anything you want to say about that because you know it comes up you know we can mention midnight robber again um, which is so uh, such a brilliant feat in terms of assembling language, and it comes up again in Broad Dirty Water. So you want to say about uh, say a bit about this and why is it important for you as a science generator?
1: Hmm. That's a tough one. I don't always use Anglo Caribbean language. Sometimes I use I use whatever language I have I have access to. But I I am known for being somebody who who frequently writes in in Anglo Caribbean vernacular. I am wired to love language. I have a, a learning disorder which actually predisposes me towards language um i my social skills might be awkward but i can i can speak (laughs) (laughs) and i can speak in a bunch of registers and you know so it's fun for me but also there's something about caribbean language that carries its history if you know the words and know what they mean you you can see where we've come from and how we've we're surviving and how we are thriving. And on top of that, it just flows, you know, it's beautiful. Uh, they, they, they all are. And I, the last university I was teaching at, there were student body was something like 77 to 80% people of color. And a lot of them were um, from like Mexico, mm-hmm. from across the border in the US, particularly the undergrads. A lot of them came to us with this supposition that they had to write in proper English. I don't know what the RAS proper English is. Yeah. English is a bastard language, it has been stealing from other languages from jump. (laughs) And it's beautiful that way. (laughs) So I get them, I have them study Miss Lou. (laughs) I have them I have them studying how to swear. You know, I teach them the Jamaican Your Face favor (laughs) or American dozens and take it from there. Because the Common speech is some of the most inventive speech there is. You can say anything you need to in it, anything. And you can joke in it and you can pun in it in four different registers at once. So it's it's a tool. I use it. It's it's my birthright and it's a beautiful thing and, and I use it. And science fiction and fantasy, um, you have the phenomenon of the neologism where you invent a word as part of your world building. And the word tells you something about the culture and history of the place. But we've been doing that with Greek and Latin and ting and ting. Why not with our own languages? So it was partly a a, Uh, claiming. I come from my dad's era of people like him and Kamal Brathwaite and people who were claiming Caribbean language as being perfectly good language in and of itself. So I come from seeing that claiming happening. And it's very, very natural to pull it into science fiction, for me anyway, and to pull it into fantasy. The, The next novel, as I said, is set partly 18th century in a Caribbean that doesn't exist. So I have to figure out how they
0: speak. And that has been fun. Looking forward to it, but <laughs> but I'm not done with you yet with this story. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean we're coming down to this, the closing stages, but I want to know from you. I mean we've talked about the challenge. You mentioned what you struggled with with creating this this story, but I want to know what you're most proud of having produced this this um this story, Broad Dirty Water. What what stands out for you different from what you've written so far? Hmm.
1: It's still very new to me, so I'm not too sure. Something about the pig. Mm-hmm. And something about the, it didn't even occur to me for the longest while I'm writing about uh, this woman and the guy who looks out for her. So this is a rasta, but her best friend is a pig. So he has, he has a few issues with, you know, Trenton living in his home all the time. It's partly that it's partly the the view of survival, yeah. that it is possible without destroying things further and perhaps maybe even, uh, to to contribute to the environment. Mm. The idea that it's almost like Caribbeanists will find a way. <laughs> so I'm very proud of that. And just being able to put it all together into a story. I've actually, with my partner, developed, a, they call it a deck, which is a pitch for a TV version of this. And we'll see that that may or may not go anywhere. Uh, but it feels like there's so much I could do do with it like this is just the kernel of the story and there's so many questions that pop up from it I read a review where somebody said I had essentially he didn't use those words but he said I'd created a, a cozy apocalypse where I you know all the the difficulty that happens all the pandemics the the, the death the, that I don't talk about it at all and I thought what but I every single thing in this story is about that um <laughs> but I am looking at survivance that lovely academic word that I'm not exactly sure what it means, but the, the the fact that we will find a way to keep going and the ways in which we can do so that are uniquely Caribbean.
0: I do feel the pigs stole this show at times. I, I do feel the stole the show. <laughs> and, and, you know, I had to, I to ask you, like, any particular Sean Paul's song you had in mind when you wrote that? Because there was an old... It 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 just said an old Sean Paul song he loved. Oh, but
1: you you can catch the lines he's actually singing them. Oh, <laughs> you no, know, shake that thing, Miss. Wanna better shake that thing. That's that's what he's singing, and it, and I loved being able to call it a classic, because in his time it's the past. That song came out a minute ago, uh, so that's that's the one mostly. That's yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> So anything you want to leave us with, I always ask writers, leave us with something. Um, anything based on, based on your writing, based on what you want to tell us from the story or, or, anything, in, or anything in general.
1: Mm-hmm. Often when I talk uh, in the Caribbean, a lot of who I'm hearing from are Caribbean people who want to write science fiction or fantasy and who don't really know how to do it and feel like they don't have permission. Mm-hmm. I'm here to wave my fairy wand. And tell you you have permission. And there's nothing you can imagine that is too outlandish. Take your courage and write it. Nobody's seen it when you're writing it. And once you've written it, you, just, you know, set your mind free and you've written it. If you look at it and you think, this is good. Do something with it. Don't put the brakes on yourself before you write the thing.
0: Yeah, you, you, I mean, you heard it. That you're the Caribbean sci-fi grandmother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess so. No picnic. But I guess so. I don't
0: know how I got to be 61, but here I am. <laughs> no, we love you. Nalo, we're at the end. I feel we could talk even longer about this story about, about all your different novels. Um, But I want to thank you so much, Grandmaster Nalo Hopkinson. Um, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. And for everyone listening, please continue to stay tuned to the Caribbean Science Fiction Network. Bye.